hello everybody. Welcome. My name is Ryan Pauly. Welcome to the show where I try to encourage you to think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview, where I'm trying to think deeply about those things with you. And then as well as try to bring on some experts, people that know a lot more than me to share different aspects of the Christian worldview and give you the opportunity to interact with them. And so today we're going to be having a conversation on doubt. Where does doubt come from? What do we do with it? How do we solve some of the issues of doubt? And how do we actually use doubt rather than it causing us to fall away from our faith, actually doubting towards faith, having a more confident Christianity in those doubts. And joining me to do that is the author of the book, Doubting Towards Faith, Bobby Conway. So Bobby, thanks for joining me. You bet, Ryan. Glad to be on with you, bro. Yeah. So, man, it's so good to have you again. And for those, if, if you don't know who Bobby is, you should. As you see in the background there, he is the one-minute apologist. Uh, but not just that. Bobby is a pastor, or he was a pastor. He is now uh, the host of the radio show, Pastor's Perspective on K-Wave. Uh, he has his uh, master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He has his doctorate in ministry and apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and is working on a PhD from the University of Birmingham in the philosophy of religion. Um, and you've also authored some great books, right? The one we're going to be talking about here today, Doubting Towards Faith. Uh, but you have a few others, in case people are interested. Does God Exist? 51, uh, and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Nice, short, easy to answer, or kind of easy responses. The Fifth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And then also you have the book, Hell, Rob Bell, and What Happens When You Die. So author, pastor, apologist, good friend. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. Glad to be on with you, bro. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, maybe just kind of start out. Um, you know, uh, let's let's do a quick little kind of story of who you are, how, how people kind of get to know you a little bit. So, uh, let's start with maybe that that background that you have, the one minute apologist. Kind of uh, where did that kind of come about, and and what is the one minute apologist? So, uh, you know, I never even became a Christian until I was 19, and when I did get saved, I had no idea what the word apologetics uh, meant, like most people. Uh, but then, as I began growing in my faith and sharing the gospel, apologetics became a great tool for me in sharing the gospel. So the person who says apologetics isn't important has just revealed how little evangelism they're doing, because when we do evangelism, people have questions, and apologetics becomes a tool for us to defend the faith in hopefully a credible way. So then what happened was is uh, apologetics helped me uh, in evangelism, and then apologetics began to help me even with some of my own doubts as I would begin to struggle while I was at Dallas Seminary. That's the first time I can remember really beginning to struggle with some deep doubts as I was looking at some of the synoptic gospels side by side. Uh, I would find myself struggling trying to put this together, seeing these apparent contradictions, and then God would bring me through that season of doubt. Then I ended up going and planting a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, once I started the church, uh, you know, I was passionate about teaching through the word and uh, equipping the flock to have a good apologetic understanding. I started to do uh, my my D-men in apologetics. Geisler had a seminary in Charlotte. I did that. And uh, what happened was, is I had our worship pastor over one night, and I said, man, wouldn't it be cool to start a YouTube ministry? This is back in 2009, when YouTube was really in its nascent stages. And I said, it'd be cool just to be able to kind of do these short little videos. And he's like, yeah, man, we could do like a black and white environment, just put some cool music on. And uh, originally, I didn't even plan to interview people. It was just going to be me operating as an apologist 
But then I started getting lots of connections to even interview people. So now I've got, you fast forward these many years later, uh, you know, over 1,100 videos. Uh, I probably have done about a third to 40, uh, 40% of them where it's just me. But then I've interviewed some world-leading Christian apologists yeah. and philosophers along the way. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and you know, those are those are incredible videos. Um, now, I am curious because, you know, obviously when I when I do a, an hour-long interview or, or sometimes longer with someone like this, we can really kind of cover a topic. We can uh, uh, respond to objections, answer questions, do a lot, kind of go more in-depth. Uh, when I put out three-minute videos or five-minute videos, there's always things that you have to leave out. And uh, I'm always bound to get quite a few objections, uh, not only from uh, from skeptics, but also from Christians. Well, you didn't. What about this? Well, what about that? What about? And it's like ah, you can't say that all in three or five minutes. I'm curious of how you've kind of uh, received that criticism, maybe in videos only being one minute long. How you can really kind of give a comprehensive answer to some difficult questions in in just one minute. Well, that is true, and I have heard that as kind of you know a criticism of the channel before. Now, uh, my personal perspective, Ryan, is that's not that's not my heart. I mean, I'm obviously, as you mentioned, I'm literally just sending off uh, all my final stuff to hopefully go defend my viva in England uh, to get my PhD in philosophy of religion. So I love depth. I love uh, learning a lot. Uh, you know, I'm a guy that uh, taught myself to speed listen. Uh, I, I listen to, you know, two to three books a week on Audible a lot of times. So, I mean, I'm constantly uh, moving through info. The purpose of this was is recognizing that we're in a soundbite culture. And so, uh, you know, here I was as a pastor when we started the channel and I was spending two years preaching through the Gospel of John, giving 45 to one hour uh, messages each week on the Bible. The point of this is, um, you know, we need lots of slices in the apologetic pie if we're going to reach people. And I see apologetics as sort of an empire whereby we're all finding our niche and we're trying to reach different people. So you have a uh, debate format, you've got lecture format, you've got short video format. And so all I'm trying to do is expose people and just scratch an itch where hopefully they'll take a deeper dive. So by interviewing some of these different apologists, I hope that it doesn't stop with the answer to the question, but they'll go on and they'll read their books yeah. and they'll go further. And that's kind of the goal. So now what's been nice is like you, Ryan, I've been doing a lot. I just interviewed Nancy Piercy last night, I saw that. Uh, interviewing Frank Turk next week. Uh, and now I'm taking all these connections and doing like these one hour interviews. It's kind of this whole idea of apologetic is evolving but that that is the way that I can remember I want to have uh, William Lane Craig on he flew into town and I took his book on guard and we did a DVD series and I kind of the interview of that uh, for that DVD series and then I got him on my program and he got in the seat and man he did like 12 questions in like 20 minutes or something like that and you know I think at first he was feeling like how am I gonna get you know content out this fast but because Craig is so good at offering a succinct, quick answer, um, he was able to do it and he ended up really loving that. And so I think that when we know our stuff, you can give an hour presentation, you can give a 30 minute presentation, you can give a 30 second presentation. It's just 
one is more detailed than the other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that's one thing I enjoyed about, uh, I had William Lane Craig on my show as well a few weeks back and, and I just loved how he was very succinct, clear, could keep things short. And then we kind of, uh, I could kind of probe and, 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 and go deeper into the areas that I wanted to go into. Uh, but I, I, you know, I just think it's very interesting because, you know, coming from someone, uh, myself who, who does the hour long interviews and the short videos, similar to you, um, you know, trying to find that, that, I guess that happy medium in a sense of like, as you mentioned, our culture is very soundbite culture. Uh, and there's a lot of people that will not watch this one hour interview um, and and want the short shorter clips that do have good information. At the same time, then there are the people who go, well, this isn't enough. There needs to be more. And it's like, well, yeah, there, there are other videos for that too. It's, yes. it's really trying to hit a wide, wide range of people. Um, now, I'm also kind of curious as we uh, jump in, before we jump into the topic, uh, kind of again on your story, you're from Southern California. You said you went out to um, uh, South Carolina to plant a church and then uh, back here in California again. Um, from a pastor's perspective, uh, and you also have the radio show, Pastor's Perspective, um, you know, kind of uh, how, how do you... I guess maybe speak to two different groups, you know, one being, you know, pastors and church leaders and youth pastors watching this. How do you uh, work apologetics and kind of a defense of the faith into your sermons, into kind of the, the heartbeat of the church? Well, when I served as a pastor, one of the things that I felt like was important is let's envision a mom and a dad coming to church for the first time. And they've got a couple toddlers uh, and maybe they've got a, a child that's getting ready to enter into, you know, kindergarten or what have you. Um, you have another family that's got uh, some high school kids. What I wanted to, to communicate to my staff is we need to be able to hand parents a trajectory of growth of the process by which their kids are going to be on. And so I felt like we need to be strategic and intentional about thinking through the questions that kids need to be prepared to answer at different stages. And some of this stuff would even come down to like, you know, uh, what, what, what is a boy? What is a girl? How, does, how do we treat each other? Understanding some of those differences. Um, and so what we wanted is for parents to feel like, wow, we're plugging into a church that they're not just being spontaneous mm -hmm. every week about what they're doing. They're really thinking through what our kids need. So Robert Lewis, uh, who is the developer of the men's fraternity curriculum, is a longtime mentor of mine. He said, I used to raise my kids and I was haunted by one question, that one day I'm going to be standing on the driveway and we're going to load up the U-Haul and my child's going to drive away in a truck full of stuff. But the question that really haunted me is, what are they really leaving home with? Mm. And I think that kind of question for me as a pastor was, what are kids going to leave home with? Well, we want them to have an apologetic. We want them to have a biblical worldview. We want them to understand how to view film. We want them to know what questions the culture is asking. We want them to be confident Christians. We want them to know how to articulate the faith. So we felt like we needed to bring them through the different stages from elementary to junior high to high school, all the way up. And maturing their faith in that way. So I think that what I would encourage is if people are pastors, they don't have to necessarily be an apologist, but they got to find those who are apologetically acclimated and they've got to empower them because we're living in a time where we can't afford to not equip people. I think right now, Ryan, imagine when the doors are fully open after COVID, people are going to come back 
the pastor's got to have a really clear vision of what the heck just happened. Our culture's changed. If I'm a betting guy, and I hate to even say this, I won't be surprised if church attendance from this point forward is going to be down at least a third. That is staggering to think that churches on an average will probably have lost a third because people have got conditioned on watching church online. Those who really weren't committed found like, you know what, I just got used to not going. So those that do come back are a gift to the pastor, and we owe it to them to understand things like critical race theory, race theory, uh, secularism, pluralism, uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement. We need to be able to dialogue about the issues of our time, about Marxism, communism, anarchy. Uh, we need to help them to have a voice. And if they don't have that voice, it could be because they haven't been equipped. Yeah. And if they haven't been equipped, it could be because the pastor's been living on a pop culture diet, and that's just not going to be enough. Yeah, and the, you know, and the church is just can be such a, a wonderful place of, of of kind of I guess rallying people up and, and, and helping people understand what to get behind and, and the gospel, not only the gospel, but how that gospel then plays out in culture. And again, you think that if the, if the church is not out there uh, advocating uh, for certain um, you know ministries and organizations and groups and and what is happening in culture. Um, you know, then who is uh, for people who are truly doing a good work? Um, you know, now kind right. of on the flip side then of what would you say then to uh, to the person that's watching this and going, man, I, I love apologetics. That's why I'm watching this interview at 9 a.m. on a on a Thursday morning with Ryan and Bobby. Um, <laughs> uh, what do they say? Maybe they're not watching it at 9 a.m. They're, they're getting the recorded version. Uh, but anyways, um, what would you say to them that, that they're watching and going, man, I wish my church was doing this. I wish my church was going deeper. And it just simply seems like it stays at more of a surface level, uh, kind of surface level issues, not going in depth into theology and apologetics. Uh, what can they do? Is, is it leaving the church or is there a way that they can influence the church from within? Well, that's a really tough question. I've seen it disturb lots of lay people, Ryan. Um, people who came to our church, um, you know, it's, it's funny, like in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's like our church had a reputation for teaching the Bible. And I thought, that is so sad. Like every church should be known for teaching the Bible, right? Uh, but people would come and they would share, oh my goodness, we've been to 15 to 20 churches sometimes. And then they would come and they would say, their frustration, they're wanting to understand their worldview, how to defend the faith, but they weren't getting that. I do think some of the steps that we could take on the front end is this. Um, okay, so I'm a lay person who's apologetically inclined. I, I, I get the Christian worldview, but I'm in a church that I love the people. Uh, even doctrinally, there's nothing that I have a problem with. It's just we don't seem like we know how to contextualize the gospel in a worldview way for our flock. What do we do? Well, I think I would go to the pastor and I would just share, hey, I've been here for a little bit. This is my passion. This is my burden. Is there any place for that? Or have you ever done the apologetics? Unfortunately, a lot of pastors have a bad taste in their mouth when they think of apologetics uh, because it of some of the way it was arrogantly presented in the past, Ryan. Uh, I mean, old school rule apologetics it was kind of like we we were defending the faith on issues that were just kind of so ancillary it didn't seem to matter it was overly black and white it could come across self-righteous it felt like it was just for the academically elite uh, and so by the very nature of the way it was presented it was off-putting and so we have to let pastors know that 
maybe they went to seminary years ago, but they haven't stayed in touch with kind of the way that apologetics has really been developing, they might have a bad taste in their mouth. And what we want them to realize is, man, listen to some of these people. Maybe it's the job of the layperson. Hey, have you heard of this person or this person? Just so I can see, maybe read James Sire's book, a little primer on humble apologetics so that they can see a way to present it. Um, and then if they're just adamantly against it and there's not going to be a place for you in that, then that's problematic. Mm. Uh, for for me, it would be problematic because be, how are we going to equip the flock if we're not willing to d- teach them how to defend the faith in this time? So if, if you've done those steps of having a conversation, seeing what the pastors want to do, and they're just like, no, there's no place for us to even consider that. That's the point where I might lovingly just kind of go find another place whereby people might be interested in that. Yeah. And I think even just kind of, as you mentioned, uh, there might even just need to be coming up soon is just even a, a basic apologetic of why the church is important. Uh, why we even need to be in church rather than why not just watch online? Why not just, you know, or, or the people who have said, yeah, well, I went to church and, you know, life seemed good and it kind of was working for me. And then, Hey, I haven't been to church in the last four months and Hey, life is still kind of good. And I still got my job and things are working out. So, Hey, maybe I don't need it. It's a very kind of practical approach. And, you know, needing pastors and, and, and Christians to kind of say, here's why the church is important, uh, why this matters, uh, I think it's going to be. Yeah, that's exactly up. right. Exactly, Ryan. We need to be able to, to start stressing that. that that's, that's actually a very insightful question uh, that the church needs to be answering right now. We need to be able to know why uh, it's more than just watching online. Exactly. Now, one of the things that I'm encouraged by, and I don't know if you've noticed this, Ryan, I feel like our culture is in such chaos. So think, one of the benefits of the cancel culture is I'm seeing that, wow, we really do need to speak up. We need to figure out, but we need to be able to speak up in groups. We need to find our boldness alone so we're not picked off. I'm seeing uh, lots of conversations, even about how important politics uh, the church used to be so quiet on politics, and I'm not saying that it's our job to get up and just be like, Republican, Democrat, or this and this, but what we're seeing is we could risk completely falling into a communistic country at some point if we stay silent. So I think what's happening right now is people are wanting to speak up more now than they have in a long time, but the scary thing is is they don't really know what to say necessarily because they haven't been equipped. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, uh, my wife and I, as we look on social media, I think a lot of times we see Christians speaking up in a way that kind of like, oh, man, that, that is not coming across well. Uh, that, that, I'm <laughs> right. sorry, that does not make you look like you are sharing the love of Christ. Like, I get it. You are so focused on truth and you are adamant you're going to get the truth out into this mm-hmm. culture that somehow everyone has missed it. But, man, like there has to be this component of sharing the truth in love. And, and I think I've kind of related it to like the example of, you know, when you talk about the problem of evil, there's the logical problem and there's the emotional problem. And, and if someone's going to come and say, why why does God allow the pain and suffering? Uh, you know, Sean McDowell always says, you know, the best question to ask is, well, of all the questions to ask God, why this one? Because if their answer mm-hmm. is, I was watching Batman versus Superman and Lex Luthor presents this you know, problem and I was just curious how, how to solve it, that's a very different response than my mom just got diagnosed with cancer, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're in a culture where people are hurting and we're giving the logical answer like, well, I'm just going to pound the truth out there. And if you don't understand it, you're a moron. And 
<laughs> rather than saying, hold on, how can we truly show compassion and love? Um, yeah, exactly. It's one thing that, yeah, it, it's hard to see. I, I guess I could put it that way. Um, now I, I, well, I'll ask you one kind of uh, one question that came in on Instagram before we kind of jump in then to uh, our conversation on doubt. Um, it's a fun question. YOLO scape asks if you could choose to do anything for a day. And I guess this would be, uh, even if there's no quarantine stuff going on, what would it be? What would you like to do for one day, Bobby? <laughs> I don't know if it's, if I could choose anything to do for a day that I can't choose to do. So I would choose that. Or if it's, if I could choose anything to do for a day that I can choose to do for a day, what would I do? I think you're so getting, I, I think you're getting like... too philosophical for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I might be, but if it's just, Hey, if you have a free day, what would you like to yeah. do? And I think honestly, uh, like right now, just a good free day, just to take my family down to the beach, take the surfboards, uh, and just hang out at the beach for the day and jump in the water and do some surfing with my son. Awesome. Sounds like a good day. Sounds like Brett Kunkel. Uh, I think that, I think that, I think his day would be the same as yours. Uh, for me, there's too many sharks. No, he, he made fun of me. I think he called me like a girl or something during an interview for, for saying there's too many sharks. Um, <laughs> no, but I scuba yeah, dive. I'm not, bread. I know I scuba dive. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that, but, um, awesome. Well, uh, you know, so, okay. So something that you said, uh, kind of jumping in, um, you know, back in March, as I told you. I did a, a live stream on the topic of doubt and, and kind of where doubt comes from. And so uh, so some of this is kind of going to be similar. Now, I, again, there's going to be people watching this that didn't see that. So I want to kind of go over a few things here. Uh, but one thing I talked about is this uh, doubt can come from a lack of foundational knowledge that we truly don't understand aspects of Christianity. And so something is either presented that we, uh, that we don't understand uh, or we even have false information of who we think God is. And then, and then we get this different picture, maybe like the God of the Old Testament. We go, what? and we just don't understand these things. Now, in your story, you talked about how when you got into seminary, uh, you were then presented with uh, kind of the, the contradictions in scripture or different aspects of seminary. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit more into that of, of what was it about being in seminary that started to cause doubts to, to, to come in your mind? Was it a, man, I didn't know that about Christianity and you're learning things you didn't know? Or was it something different that you're now starting to study objections against Christianity? So when I was talking to Nancy Piercy last night, um, and for those that might not be familiar, she's the author of Total Truth, Finding Truth, Saving Leonardo, her latest book, Love Thy Body. She's a worldview expert. She studied under Francis Schaeffer at Labrie, who was one of the great apologists of the 20th century. He died in 1984. Him and his wife, Edith, started Labrie in the Swiss Alps, and it was this place for people to come who were skeptical about Christianity, and he would allow them to ask their questions, and then he would provide a Christian worldview to show the supremacy of Christian theism over and above the alternative worldviews. And Piercy kind of fell into Christianity under Schaefer in that mindset. So shifting from agnosticism and being able to see these variegated uh, options as it relates to belief. For me, I never heard the gospel till I was 19. Living here in California, uh, uh, it, 
you know, it might make sense to some, it might seem staggering to others, but literally the, the thought that Jesus died on a cross, rose from the grave, some might say, well, what about Easter and Christmas? I had no idea what was going on. I just saw someone hanging on a cross on the TV. Yeah, it, it did not really make sense. There was a total disconnect until I ended up learning at the age of 19 about uh, the gospel. Uh, when I got saved, um, you know, I really didn't even know what questions to ask. I mean, the two questions I was searching for was, what's the purpose of my life? What do I do with my guilt? Jesus answered that. Uh, I found, you know, that through him, he came to give me life and life abundantly. And then the atonement, he eradicated my guilt. Uh, what happened was, is I fell in love with the Lord. Uh, you know, I, I was a big partier, ended up doing over 400 AA meetings in my first year of sobriety. Went to AA October 9, 1994, and man, when the alcoholism just really started lifting, I started sharing Jesus with everything that moved. Mm. Uh, I ended up getting a call to ministry. I went off to Arkansas, where Heather was from, my wife. I ended up in this little Baptist Bible college. I didn't even know how to pick a Bible college. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what I, you know, I mean, I just, I didn't know. I can remember, Ryan, when I went to this Bible college, everybody was calling each other like Brother Daryl and Brother Doug. And I was like, hey, do I have to do that? That feels kind of weird, like just calling each other Brother brother Joe. And I was like, well, just call me Bro Bobby. <laughs> you know, we'll, just, we'll just go with the Bro Bobby. So so this Baptist Bible college, here I am, Ryan, you can imagine, from Southern California. Uh, and now I'm having to memorize verses for my evangelism class in the King James. I had to memorize 50 verses in the King James. And I thought, man, I'm out doing evangelism. People don't speak like this. Why am I doing this? And so I was learning, I was getting put into a very tight, constraining box of, you know, here's the way to see the, the creation. Here's the way to see the return of Christ. Here's the way to read the Bible. I was even told that I should get rebaptized into the Baptist Missionary Church, which my Bible college was Baptist Missionary. In other words, like maybe my baptism didn't count. Mm. And I thought, wow, well, then I go off to Dallas Seminary, Ryan. And so instead of just being put in this tight little box, um, now I'm learning the three views of this, the four views of this, the five views of this. And I'm going, well, wait a second. What's going on here? I thought I was kind of given the way to see things. And now there's three views and four views. Well, because I'm analytical and, you know, I'm a creative type as well, I don't stay in tight boxes real well. Uh, so I started breaking out of that box. But what would happen is, is it started to create doubt in me. So for me, my passion about writing Doubting Toward Faith is I think Nancy Piercy didn't struggle with all these major doubts because she was given a big box to get in to begin with. Hey, there's all these different ways to look at it. So when we're presented with mere Christianity on the front end and we're told things like, hey, uh, you know, welcome to you know the Christian faith. I want you to know, don't be surprised. Enjoy reading. Don't try to conquer it. Uh, don't 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 commit to theological positions too quickly. Study the different views, the different approaches, because there's lots of views on lots of things. And what else should we expect? Uh, we got 2000 years of church history. Of course, there's different views. Uh, I mean, there's different views on the news every night for events that took place that day. <laughs> so shouldn't we expect to see different views? And so now what I think happens is, is I did it with my kids. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love God. Love people, celebrate the gospel, and enjoy learning. Uh, you know, understand the different views. But when you people become a member of a church on a Wednesday, and then they're told on Sunday, you have to believe Article A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, A, D, K, and they haven't even had time to think through it. 
And then when I start thinking about it and they start questioning Article D, then they feel like, well, I got to walk away from the entire faith or accept Article D, where instead maybe what they should have been given was a bigger box Christianity. Now, the problem with progressive Christianity and the emergent church is uh, Christianity doesn't even need a box. Yeah. Like we don't need borders. We don't need boundaries. And I want to say, no, no, we do. We need theology. We need orthodoxy. We need a box. But the box is a lot bigger than some people have been put into. And if they feel like they're in this tight little box, sadly, many people walk away from the faith altogether, not realizing that the box is bigger. Yeah. Well, that's so good. And, you know, and I have a, uh, I'm in conversation right now with Elisa Childers uh, to, to discuss progressive Christianity in her book that is coming up. Um, but I think it's important what you just talked about. And this came up in a, man, in an interview I did before YouTube. It was on my podcast um, quite a while ago with John Marriott. He wrote a book, A Recipe for Disaster, uh, why, you know, young people are walking away from the faith and how we can kind of build a confident Christianity. But one of the, the things he talked about, and I think you mentioned here, is this idea of what he called overprepared, that we kind of create this house of cards of everything you have to believe. Uh, you have mm -hmm. to, you know, and it includes things like you have to be six day creationist and you have to be pre-trib and you have to be, uh, you, you can't play cards on a Sunday night and you can't do, you know, and all these different, you can't dance and you can't, you know, it's all these behavioral rules <laughs> as well as theological beliefs. Um, and, and, and so when maybe what it sounds like is what you're saying is that when you, you, you realize that Christians believe something different, that there are Christians who maybe believe the earth is old, or maybe believe in a, in a limit, uh, you know, different views of eschatology, all of a sudden you realize what you have been told is the true Christianity falls apart, right? You kind of have this idea of deconstructionism where everything just gets deconstructed. The problem is, is that oftentimes it doesn't get reconstructed into a more solid view of Christianity, mm -hmm. right? So is that kind of what, mm -hmm. you, what you'd say is kind of the view that you had of, of this is what Christianity is, and then realizing there's so much more and rather than that, destroying it, how do you then use that, broaden your understanding of Christianity, and then build a stronger foundation? Yeah, so I mean, let's think about the issues that often cause people to kind of walk away from the faith and question it. They weren't even questions that the early church was struggling with. So for example, when we look at the early church, <clears throat> excuse me, in Acts chapter 2, like when I think about, oh, what do I aspire the church to be? What Man, if I, our church could be anything, it's Acts 2. Well, that's great. But the thing is, is Acts 2, um, when that's going down at Pentecost, we don't even have the first book of the New Testament written. It's not going to be written for, I mean, a couple decades after that. So the first, uh, er, the early church was blowing up and growing without the first book of the New Testament for almost a couple decades. So what does that tell us? Um, well, I think what's happened is, is the longer the church has existed, the, that's where apologetics comes into gear. Where the apologists come into play is so you envision the early church, it starts, but then people start breaking into the church and they've got these heretical views. And, and early on, you have the apostles there to ward that off and they're offer, offering an apologetic of why, uh, you know, like, uh, you think about the Judaizers in the book of Galatians, why that's wrong, uh, you know, and that's offered up there. Or, <clears throat> you know, at the Jerusalem Council, why you don't need to be circumcised in Acts chapter 15. So you see 
the apologists operating uh, or the apostles operating like apologists. Well, that same thing has been going on all the way through church history, all the way up until today, be it with the Arian controversy in the fourth century as it relates to hammering out the, the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, uh, be it on hammering out the dual natures of Christ with the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, being it with the Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, when Luther, you know, hung up his 95 theses on the doors of Wittenberg at the Wartburg, um, or not at the Wartburg Castle, but at, at, in Wittenberg, he went to the Wartburg Castle when he was uh, in prison or, or when he was hiding out so he wouldn't be uh, killed. He was hiding out at the Wartburg Castle. Been there a couple of times, an interesting place. But all that to say, that's what happens. So you have liberalism taking place uh you know, uh, over the last hundred years, and what is the church doing? It's defending it. So Elisa Childers, what is she doing? She's coming out with progressive Christianity to deal with that issue that day. So we're always doing apologetics. So these issues become more and more and more cumbersome, right? We have to deal with this because of the false teaching. So what we have to do is we have to kind of go back to mere Christianity and get back to, well, what is that Acts 2? What were they growing on? Well, loving God, loving people, and celebrating the gospel. And so when we can go back and go, that's mere Christianity, man. What, you know, The fact that God created us and the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, we're going to hang on to those issues. But yes, there are these issues we have to defend for the sake of the overall Christian faith. Yeah, and you know that, that's so important to point out. Of, of just because your church may be wrong on their view of eschatology does not mean they're also wrong in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there are there exactly. are ways in which Christians can disagree on which we are trying to figure out what is Scripture telling us. But there are certain things that are so clear and solid, and the foundation of Christianity that we should not so easily throw away. Um, kind of getting into some kind of the uh, a few practical questions. Um, uh, the first one is that you talk about in your book about how uh, you, you you state that the more college students felt that they had the opportunity to express their doubts uh, while in high school, they had higher levels of faith maturity and spiritual maturity. So what is it about students being able to express doubts that leads to a deeper maturity in Christianity? And then after that, I want to talk kind of about uh, how you practically do this within the family. So kind of first, how does being able to, to express doubts for students lead to deeper maturity? I think that when we're not able to express our doubts, uh, we become kind of closet Christians. And I think that there's a lot of people, Ryan, that show up in church small groups, and you'll get people that spiritualize everything. I wasn't just unbelievable. Look at this, and look at this, and look at this. And you'll get an analytical person going, man, but is this guy just missing this completely? Like, this is hard to digest here, right? I mean, we're so far removed from uh, the context of the Bible in today's, uh, you know, modern world that sometimes we can't always uh, mentally bridge that gap. It's difficult. And so we end up coming together <clears throat> in our small groups. And I don't think doubters always feel safe opening up going, you know, my take on it is I just kind of felt like it was hard for me to realize how this even happened. Now that person might express that. That doesn't mean this person doesn't believe, but they just need some coaching on what the what, how God was working with his people at that time, what the particular context was at that time. They just need that extra, um, you know, assurance. And so when we show up in small groups, uh, the Bible says, be merciful to those who doubt. We end up freaking out, panicking, don't doubt, it's wrong. 
Uh, we make people feel like they, they're, they're lacking in spirituality. And what we need to do is just get it on a table that even, you know, the, the, the apostles struggle with doubt. You know, we see doubt throughout the Bible. It's not abnormal. It's part of being human. I mean, uh, look, we like to not doubt. It would be like saying, I've never worried. I've never had fear. I've never been angry. Right. I mean, these are just things that we do as people. We struggle like that. And so uh, if we're allowed to talk about our worries and our fears and our anger in small groups, well, could we talk about our doubts? Now, I get if somebody's just coming in and they're just going to undermine it, like they're intent on destroying the faith of of the church. That's different. But somebody who's inquisitive and want to learn when you let that out and then when we validate it. Wow, that is incredibly freeing. But what happens is, is if you try to let your doubt leak and then somebody just punishes you for having it or makes you feel less than spiritual, then you keep it on the inside and then you're you, you end up feeling like a fake Christian. You're showing up at these meetings and it feels real cheesy and it feels superficial and you want to be real. You want to be authentic. But people are telling you, you can be real. You can be authentic up to a certain point. Just don't kind of get into the closet of your doubts or just don't get into the closet of your deep sin here. Yeah. You know, and that's definitely something that I, I made the mistake of. I remember being like a freshman in college and the first time one of my close friends expressed doubts and like, I can't, I don't think I can believe in a God who allows pretty much pain and suffering. And, and I just, I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember it wasn't great. It was like, oh, I can't even believe that. How could you possibly, you know, it's like, and, and I definitely, I did that as well. Uh, now I'm kind of curious then because I, I've, um, I've had people, youth leaders tell me before how they've been open, uh, and they've, and they've had this openness and they've expressed doubts, but they've kind of left it at that. Uh, and, and then that just continues to weigh on them to where one even said he would preach every Sunday to the youth, but he wouldn't really believe the things he was preaching, but he'd be open about his doubts. He'd share his doubts, but then he kind of left it there. And I love how the, your book talks about how Doubts are not neutral. They're taking you in a direction. And so kind of what would be the downfall of, uh, this is, I guess, then navigating and responding to it. What would be the downfall of, of just creating an openness where everyone can come along and share the doubts that they have and be like, cool, we shared our doubts versus not <laughs> doing something about them, not actually going and finding the answers and, and kind of investigating them? We have to be proactive with our doubt. Uh, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> <coughs> pun intended <coughs> got a little bit of a hang up in my throat excuse me so we we do have to be proactive Ryan yeah because we just come around and we're not celebrating doubt uh, uh we're acknowledging that it's part of being human but we need to doubt with it right i mean like like i talk about in my book we can either doubt um means to be in two minds and it splits the mind uh, the bible says in james that Chapter one, that the double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. So it splits you. Um, and it, it's it's incredibly, for the person who gets into real deep doubt, like like what I went through, like literally, where I had thoughts of like, you know, being at the bottom of a lake. Because what was most important to me was now being so deeply questioned. That's a horrifying experience to go through for a person. And so... Uh, for me, it wasn't like it's like the person who's just kind of like floating with their doubts and they don't do anything about it. It makes me wonder, like, well, how deep is their faith anyway? Because like my doubts, like I had to get out of that unstable, double minded place because my faith was so important to me. Yeah. I had to figure it out. Now, the problem was for me is 
um, I like a lot of apologists have struggled with doubts, and because I mean, you know them, I know them, um, and going through a season of doubt can turn you into an apologist because you start studying and finding answers. But the danger for me became is I I was kind of on, on a quest for omniscience. Mm. It was like I was reading like crazy. I mean, I, I, my study habits through the years at some points were pretty intense. I mean, I, there were there were times where I was probably studying eight to twelve hours a day. Um, I remember I went on a sabbatical and went I read over a hundred. I think I read one hundred and fifteen books in ninety days. Wow. Uh, and many of them were the great Christian classics. A lots a lots of top notch stuff. I mean, just. Because what am what am I? Oh, I'm a recovering addict. Well, what what do I do? I take my addictive personality and I throw it into learning. And so for the last 25 years, I've been obsessing on learning. But here was the thing: I would hear Bobby, what you need to do if you're struggling with doubts is you need to just you need to go read that down, right? You need to chase that down. Well, there's some truth to that, Ryan. But for every book that I read, I would learn 10 more than I needed to read. <laughs> so the snowball kept growing. For me, eventually, what I had to do. Is, so I became a Christian trying to get those two questions answered. What do I do with my guilt? What's the purpose of life? Now I'm a Christian. So I go to Bible college then to learn about my Christianity. Then I go to seminary to get a theology degree to help me to understand my Bible better. Then I went and got an apologetics degree to help me to better do theology. Then I went and did a philosophy degree uh, to better help me with my apologetics. And when I was out in the middle of all that, swimming in doubts, I realized I have to have faith like a child and come back to this thing like I got into it. Uh, I believe. Help me with my unbelief and trusting in Jesus. Because here's the deal. Uh, we can, we can, I'm thankful for the process of all these different fields of learning that God taught me about. But what was funny is when all was said and done, it was that simple childlike faith trust that I had to go back to. You want to know what? The questions were always there that would later haunt me. I just didn't know it. Hmm. So, man, so much comes up. Then. So I, I guess in my question with it, and, and I want to get into quite a few of those, is first then, what would you say is the difference between, because uh, you talk about how there's a difference between thinking about your faith and then doubting the faith. So what would be the difference between thinking about the faith, having good questions that you're trying to find the answer to, uh, how is that different than doubting saying, you know, did this really happen versus, Oh, did this really, I, you know, what's the difference between those two questions or there's, there's a place. Yeah. It's kind of like, what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? And as, as my mentor, Robert Lewis said, well, one sanctified, <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's sometimes confidence and arrogance can look a lot alike. Yeah. Right. But there is a difference. One sanctified. Um, what's the difference between thinking about your faith and doubting your faith? Well, I'd say um, all all doubts include some thinking, but not all thinking include doubt. OK, so <clears throat> um, when I was struggling, I'm thinking about my faith all the time but I'm not experiencing existential angst. I think doubt comes with some angst. Like, like it, it's disturbing. It, it's, it's, it, it puts as Kokel talks about, like that's the pebble in your shoe, right? But for the believer, uh, it, it disturbs you. You're not at rest. Um, for me, all those years of struggling with doubt, um, I was thinking about my faith, but I was also doubting my faith, and therefore I was experiencing angst. Today, by God's grace, 
I'm still thinking about my faith. I still have those questions, but I'm not feeling that angst. I think one of the things that helped me was uh, before I really got deep into the waters of philosophy, I think some of the questions I might've had is, well, how do I know that I got it right as a Christian? Like, you know, I think now I've studied enough of the different worldviews and the different ideologies and the different frameworks and the different philosophies where now what's happening is, is when you first start getting into the philosophical waters, you're worried about drowning. You're fearful. But then as you stay out there and you swim, your endurance builds and you know how to get back to shore and your faith gets stronger. So now it's kind of like at first when I was getting into it all, I was feeling so much angst and consternation. But now it's like I've been out in those waters and it's not as if I know all the questions or know all the answers. But I've been out there in those storms enough that I've come back and I sit on shore and I go, nothing's greater than Christianity. Like, I mean, I literally, I am somebody that I, I felt like I was hanging by a strand. And now I'm here. Like when someone says he has risen, I'm going to shout out. He has risen indeed. Like I'm, I'm ready to tell the world about Jesus. I, I'm ready to go head to toe with the different worldviews. I believe that Christ is alive. And I never thought it was so dark, so desperate, so much existential angst, my dark night of the soul. I never thought that I could even remotely get to this place where I'm at now. And I love it because now I can come out of that dark night of the soul and encourage people. And I feel like I'm also able to navigate storms better myself. And that's what I want to give people hope for. Like there's people who are doubting Ryan that think I can never live without my faith feeling like it's biting at me. And I go, no, don't underestimate what God's doing to deepen you to th there's something about the dark night of the soul that's necessary for us as believers to go through. But getting back to that simple trust is so beautiful. And I'm so thankful to be there today. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's so encouraging to hear just hearing you talk about the, the, the joy and the, the, um, confidence you have in the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I mean, that just makes me excited. I don't, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. I, I know that that is providing hope uh, for those listening and, and watching as well. Uh, I, I, I want to get back to the question I had about family. And then I want to kind of jump through a couple of these kind of doubt triggers that you mentioned. But uh, the first one is, you know, you, you kind of briefly mentioned this of how you do this in your family. So again, you kind of talk about in your book that, um, Children need permission to doubt with mom and dad, but then they also need parents to be vulnerable to enough to share their doubts. And so, uh, you know, where is it? I, I guess there's kind of a, maybe two questions in here is one of how do, you, how do parents create this atmosphere? Um, I know like it, for me in my classroom, I have a question folder where students can turn in any question they have. And so the Christians and non-Christians feel comfortable saying, what about this? What about that? And a lot of times it's, anonym it's anonymous. And so they, they have the ability to kind of ask those questions. And when they see that I answer a question every day, um, they, they're more willing, I guess, to, to present more questions that they have. And there's this openness in the classroom. I'm not going to condemn them for doubting Christianity. So that's kind of how I've done it and talked about it on my show of in my classroom. So I'm kind of curious on how can parents uh, create an atmosphere that is open for their children to doubt? And then what would you say to parents who maybe don't want to express their doubts because they want to show, you know, their kids how confident they are in the faith and that their kids should be confident too, rather than saying, you know, I, I'm doubting these things and kind of making it seem like, you know, they're wavering, you know, in front of their mm -hmm. kids. 
you know, it's so easy for us to, to panic and freak out and worry about, you know, like our kids losing uh, their way, but they long for authenticity. Now, I think uh, for, for me as a, as a parent um, and just as a human being, transparency is my survival medicine. And uh, I learned that in AA and Celebrate Recovery. You know, we'd show up in these meetings and you just lay it out on the table. Now, my transparency at times, I didn't always share in the best environments. Sometimes I gave too much too soon. And so we have to use wisdom on how we're transparent, what context, who we're safe with. But our kids, um, it, it's seasonal. I mean, I think it's I think, you know, we we look at their age. We look at where they're at. Uh, we we can share with them. Uh, you know, when they're older and more mature and their thoughts can handle things, maybe some of our more mature questions that we've had. Uh, when they're younger, we can just let them know that it's okay that they're asking questions because they're, 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 that's what they're doing. They're, they're thoughtful. They're thinking about things. And I think we can let them know that that's a good thing, um, that, 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 that they can be more prepared through thinking these thoughts and through understanding these thoughts. For me, you know, I tried the whole family Devo thing out many times and it was a big flop. You know, I'd always hear you got to have family Devos and, you know, uh, three of the four of us in our family have ADD. So when you sit us at a table and then I would get out like the the, the white poster board, and, <laughs> you know, and they're three and five and say, we're going to talk about uh, the doctrine of justification. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it just it, it just didn't go well, you know, and, uh, and then it turned into like we're all laughing or. We're, we're derailed. What, what I have found is the best way to engage the kids in equipping them was just like Deuteronomy 6 talks about, like when you walk by the way, when you lie down, uh, you know, it's, it's just a lifestyle of just of, of, of open conversation. So like, for example, like when I take the kids to the movies, when we get in the car, I didn't just let the movie end. I would say, well, uh, you know, your dad's been teaching you guys about our Christian worldview. Where do you think this movie aligned with our Christian worldview? Where do you think it differed from our Christian worldview? So what they see is we're always in discussion. Uh, did you did you feel like, boy, that the power of the music in that movie, it, it, it got you cheering for something that runs against what our worldview does? And I, isn't it amazing how we can watch movies, kids, and the music can be so powerful for now, you're cheering for something to happen that goes against your worldview. And so now we're talking about our doubts in that way. And so I think that open conversation. Now, they saw me going through my doubts. I'm talking three to four years, Ryan. I mean, I ended up on antidepressants. Uh, fortunately, I've been off of those now, uh, but I ended up on antidepressant for several years. I mean, I did not know how to live. I mean, I was shutting down the doubts. were It was horrible. It was absolutely horrific. Um, and my kids saw like a father that went from being very proactive to shutting down. My wife saw it. It was scary. And in some ways, I wish I could have held myself better together because as a, as a leader of the home, uh, it was just it was too much for them to handle at times. But thankfully, I kept just trying to say, guys, I hate that you're seeing me like this. I'm just trying. But I wouldn't just overload them with my questions. You know what I did do, though? I did overload my wife with my doubts. And that was way too much because she wasn't philosophically trained to handle processing the level of questions that I was struggling with. And so that's where we need like so I needed like I, Mike Lacona as a dear friend. He struggled with doubts. I could pick the phone up and call Mike 
And that's great. He can handle it. So we sometimes have to know where to share. I think that's good. And, and as you said, I think there's a there's a healthy level of sharing, obviously. And I think even too of not only having conversations with our kids after movies and and not letting it just end, but starting to think through it. But also, I wonder how much uh, how often kids see mom and dad having deep discussions about important topics, right? When when a mom and a dad are sitting around having a a good conversation about culture and politics and religion and theology and really wrestling through difficult issues. And the kids just grow up seeing mom and dad wrestle, wrestle through these issues. How much, again, that kind of creates that family culture of, hey, this is, this is an open place where we, can, where we can discuss these things and we can wrestle through the difficult questions that we do have. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, man, there's just so much awesome stuff here and we're getting close uh, in time. But um, so one thing that you brought up uh, in, in one of the times you were sharing here is this, uh, this so much learning to try to kind of get certainty. Um, and, and that's one aspect you talk about in your book of one of the doubt triggers is this demanding certainty. Uh, and I think that you would probably agree that, you know, knowledge does not require 100% certainty. Um, that we can have knowledge and know something is true without being certain of it. Um, how do we, I guess, reconcile that with this idea like in Luke chapter one, right? Luke says, I write this gospel to you, Theophilus, so that you may have certainty considering the things that you have been taught. So how do we, how do we, re- how do we kind of wrestle with this idea of Christianity is presenting something that we can know to be true with confidence, yet there is also this faith that comes into where we can't or shouldn't maybe demand certainty. So what do you mean by this? Yeah. So I think that we'd have to recognize that if we were to sit down with Luke, who writes chapter one, that he would concede. If we were to say something like, now, Luke, uh, wouldn't you concede that nobody can know anything with 100 percent certainty? I think we'd have to concede that he would concede. Well, of course. I mean, only Jesus uh, came in the flesh and modeled, you know, this omniscience. So I don't think what Luke was saying is that you, you can have an omniscience about this. And so that's where I think how he's using certainty and how maybe, you know, our scientist friends who are, you know, methodological, methodological, uh, you know, realists. But then they're going to be people who are going to be totally uh, into scientism. And, you know, so the only thing that's real is scientism and they're going to be against anything outside of faith or anything that would include some what what we would call you know faith and trust in like things like the resurrection they'll deny that um i don't think luke is seeing certainty the way that maybe they would press us to see it i think it's confidence we can have a good confidence and so uh for me i've came to realize that doubt's not a christian problem it's a human problem and in the absence of certainty there will always be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview best closes the doubt gap? Atheists have doubts. Um, Muslims have doubts. Buddhists have doubts. Uh, relativists have doubts. Agnostics have doubts. Uh, so I used to find myself, uh, you know, as a Christian, feeling like, you know, i got to know how to defend the faith. But then what went through my brain is like, why are we always on the defense? So part of good apologetics, I think, in training could just be, knowing what are the toughest questions that atheists have to answer? What are the toughest questions that Muslims have to answer? What are the toughest questions that the relativist has to answer? And that way, when we're in conversations, uh, they know what our tough questions are. 
Well, let's throw them some tough questions because it's not like they're just sitting in something without questions themselves. They have those things. So even when I was going through my doubts, Ryan, I would find myself going, okay, let me envision if I was to walk out of Christianity and now I'm an atheist, what questions would I have? And I would try to anticipate it, but really to become an apostate, to walk out of Christianity into something else is just to walk into another set of unforeseen questions that you're going to inherit. You can anticipate some of them, but the deeper you get into that, you're going to have questions. So I got myself at a point where I was like, God, this is why. I mean, atheism just seems what's funny is it prides itself on just being, you know, this intellectually elite thing. And I'm going that it just seems it seems stupid to me. I mean, it doesn't even like that seems silly to me, like yeah, that, that this universe just kind of popped into being out of nothing. That just, that seems like you talk about having faith in something. You talk about like believing it in a miracle. I mean, my goodness, it's a miracle so big that I can't even grasp it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage of people that are just true atheists, it's so small that it blows me away by how confident that they like if anything i think that i'd just be sitting in a seat of going you know what we're kind of a small tribe maybe we got something wrong here <laughs> i mean at the end of the day we believe that all this came from nothing i mean uh so i would say that i'm thankful for science and what we can learn from science but their view of how this all came where all this came from and then how they can i mean i mean we're if we're predetermined uh, it, it cares nothing about moral values and worldview shaping and all that stuff. So I just think the views, I couldn't even stomach it. Yeah. Uh, then, then, then Islam, I couldn't stomach that. The, the one thing that looked attractive to me was agnosticism because I felt like, oh, I could just sit in the seat as an agnostic. Why did that look attractive? Because I was kind of like looking for certainty. Like, how can I know that? And uh, the agnostic just kind of says, you can't know that. So I felt like I could sit in a good critic's corner. Like, I feel like I could sit there and criticize things on to, to the Mormons, to the atheists, to the to the Buddhists, because I had been thinking about all these different options. So I just kind of felt like I could just be a good skeptic. And I know that I could just give Christians a hard time on doubts because I know what things bother me. But then I started thinking about this. There's one thing that the agnostic uh, isn't certain about, and it's this. Uh, there, uh, or there's one thing the agnostic is certain about. It's this, that there isn't an explanation for all this. Like they're certain that there is an explanation for this. They're just not sure what it is. So the, even the agnostic knows that there's an explanation for all this. They're just not sure what it is. So then I found myself thinking, well, wouldn't I rather give my life to the best explanation instead of just sitting there in this critic's corner? And that's where I think the resurrection and arguments for the existence of God is the best explanation. Yeah. And so here, here I am as a Christian. Yeah. So in my conversation last week with Greg Kokel, uh, we had a fun little role play back and forth where I presented the objection of, well, it's possible Jesus didn't exist. It's possible, you know, all the, the kind of everything. There's all these possibilities of what could have happened. Uh, therefore, you can't know. Uh, and so we had a fun kind of back and forth where he goes, well, but it's not you don't make your decisions based on what's possible, but what is plausible. So he asked the question, is it possible your wife is cheating on you? Well, yeah, it's possible. He goes, but do you think she is? I said, no, I don't. Uh, you know, there, there's good reason to believe that she's not. And so what would you say to the person who really is worried about, well, yeah, there is good reason to believe it is the best explanation, but I can't get over the fact of these other possibilities that might be true. I think one thing we can share is how 
the individual has gotten over other things uh, in their life without having certainty. Uh, you know, it's possible if I go through chemotherapy that, you know, when I've got cancer, that the, 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 all the radiation is just going to jack my body up more and I would have been better off not going through it. But I'm going to choose to go through this. I, he, we weigh things out all the time on decisions. And I think that just helping the person who is struggling to realize that's the way we make decisions in life, right? I mean, uh, when we're going to take a new job, it's possible that I should keep the job that I'm currently in because this new job, though it looks good, it's going to turn out to be worse down the road. But you weigh it all out and you, and you use wisdom. At the end of the day, I think what Christianity does offer is historical evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. And if Jesus rose from the grave, then Jesus really did die. And if Jesus really did die, Jesus really did live. And if Jesus really did live, he really did come to earth. And when Jesus did live, he said he was going to die and rise again. I mean, I think that we have good evidences there. Yeah. And, you know, it's, again, I, there's there's things in scripture that Jesus talks about, you know, because I think worry is a very real thing for a lot of people. Of, well, what if I take the job and then it goes under? Well, do you have any good reason to believe that will happen? And and trying to kind of work through and, and trusting on what, what God has revealed to us as being certain. Um, I want to address a couple of these others as we're kind of running out of time of uh, how would you kind of encourage someone who is dealing with the doubts of uh, what they find in scripture is just seems so ridiculous, right? You uh, know, in a great, you know, great flood, you know, I was just reading, my wife and I are reading through Genesis right now and you have this flood that covers the whole globe and, and then, you know, all the animals somehow get on this boat and they survive without eating each other. Like that's ridiculous or talking donkeys and talking <laughs> snakes and parting seas so people can walk through, you know, there's just so many ridiculous stories, I can't believe it. So how would you encourage someone struggling with the doubts that come from the apparent ridiculous in scripture? Yeah, that is the language that I that I use in the book, uh, are the apparent ridiculous, because uh, let's face it, I mean, there are things in the Bible that are just bizarre. Like I've heard Christians would give Mormons a hard time for all the bizarre things that they believe, and I'm going... They're not alone. I mean, there are some odd things in the scripture if we're going to be honest about this. And I, and um, I, I do the same thing when, you know, because I often, you know, have students so criticize, well, you know, Mormons think that, you know, God has a physical body and lives on some planet, Kola. I'm like, you think a, doc, a donkey talked? Yeah. Like, the question yeah. is, which one is actually true, you know? <laughs> but yeah, sorry. Exactly. No, I mean, it's, there, that, that was a huge problem for me. Um, because I struggled relating to the world of scripture. Uh, and I just, it just felt so different. And so a couple of things that would help me in dealing with that is, um, obviously if, you know, there is a God, then I don't have to have a problem believing there's miracles. The, the question is, is does God intervene? And I, you know, I believe that God does intervene and has intervened throughout history. Um, some of those things that you would see are bizarre uh, would be would be challenging. But for example, let's take Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. He waits 25 years for his promised child to come. Isaac comes. Isaac now he's growing up, and now God says, "Go kill your promised child. Offer him to me." And when we preach that in the church, we're like, yeah, look at Abraham's faith. You know, he went to offer his child up. 
And I'm thinking, man, if somebody came into my office and said, God told me to kill my son, I call Child Protection Services. But we preach it and think, man, look at his faith. And I think this is where we miss sometimes in church to equip people apologetically, to give them what's going on on a deeper level. And so God is an accommodating God. And that is to say that God meets people where they are in their culture to ultimately bring them to where he is. And so funny enough, Larry King uh, would talk about uh, the the Larry King live show that used to be on. He used to always ask people, how could God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? What's up with that? That's just horrible. He could not believe. He said, I've never heard a good answer. And that saddened me, but he could not give himself over to the faith because he never heard a good answer. It just seemed too bizarre, too ridiculous. Well, imagine if somebody was able to say something like this. You know, Larry, Abraham lived in southern Mesopotamia in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was used to child sacrifice. Child sacrifice wasn't unique to Abraham. It was the way that people would offer up their total allegiance to their gods, uh, you know, uh, like Marduk or whoever it's going to be in these surrounding territories. And so where he comes from, he would have known that the greatest way to demonstrate your belief in God is through child sacrifice. Well, then he calls him out of that region. He gives him the promised child. And once he's about to offer his child up in sacrifice, God intervenes and says, don't do it. As if to teach him the lesson, I'm not like the other gods. So the whole purpose of the story was to teach an apologetic against child sacrifice. In fact, even the law would later prohibit child sacrifice. And so isn't that interesting, the different take when we understand some of the context and the milieu of what's going on? Absolutely. That is so huge. And again, that's the importance of not just simply expressing our doubts and going, well, I expressed it, I'm good, but really then searching out uh, people that can help walk us through those doubts. And and because there are good responses to a lot of these questions. Um, I want to kind of look at uh, two more here. Uh, what would you say to the person who's struggling with doubts because of, you know, the injustices and the suffering, the problem of evil? I think this is one of the biggest ones of, you know, a lot of times people have all these arguments against God and then you ask them, why don't you believe? And it's, well, the problem of evil, there's injustice. If God is good, he wouldn't allow these things to happen. And I know there's so much we could say. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, and we're kind of a little bit over time already, but, uh, you know, push people to your book as well. But, you know, kind of, what would you say of someone struggling with doubt because of the injustices and the suffering they see around them? So here's an example. Like, um, the reality is, is there's going to be, this world's replete with injustices. Okay. So what does each worldview have to say to that? On atheism, you can recognize injustices, but then you have to have an argument of like, well, what do you mean by that? Implies that there's something just, and that applies a moral standard. And where do you even come up with a moral standard on atheism, right? So you have that problem. And then you also have the problem with people like Mao Zedong, Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Hitler. Uh, There is no ultimate justice for them because when you die, you just slip into annihilation. You're annihilated. So there's no ultimate justice on atheism. So uh, I would just flip that back when the atheist is pointing out, oh, you know, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God do anything? I'm going, well, hey, God will intervene. There is a time of judgment. The Bible is very clear about that, where there's going to be a time where all things are going to be reconciled, where there's going to be a time of judgment. So uh, just because God has not meted out his justice now doesn't mean he won't later. 
The Bible says he will later. On atheism, there is no justice. On Christianity, what you get is you don't like the timing of God's justice. You, you'd, you'd like it to be now, so it's a timing issue, but uh, we see that it'll be later. You take things like if you're uh, a, you know, a Hindu and you see bad things happening to people, uh, well, it's just because of the karma. So can you imagine the pressures? If, if bad things are happening to, to you in your life, people aren't feeling compassion for you. They're thinking you're getting your just desserts. And so here you've had a bad life. Things haven't went your way. And now people, the, the narrative that you get assigned to your life is you must have been one hell of a person in your past mm -hmm. life. Talk about creating deep insecurities. Yeah. Talk about creating a lack of relational empathy for people. So that's what that worldview gives you. Um, you know, Buddhism, you can just sit there and go, it's just an illusion. So all that to say, every worldview has to deal with the different injustices. Now, as it relates to the problem of evil, like why would God allow this world to begin with? And, you know, we know that he's given us free will. We can rebel against him. There's natural evils. There's moral evils. But here's what dawned on me as I was reflecting on this one day. I thought, you know, God is so great that when he creates us and we rebel against him, the worst in us comes out. But then we see things about God, Ryan, that we never would have known had he not created us in a world with the potential for so much injustice and evil. For example, if we were just created as robots and we never would have freely rebelled and this world would have always been perfect, how would we know that God's forgiving in a world where we never needed forgiveness? How would we know that God is unconditional as love for us in a world where we always met his conditions? How would we know what grace and mercy is in a world where we never needed grace and mercy? So in a world that God creates whereby we reject his way and the worst of us comes out, God is so fantastic and so great, we learn more attributes of him that we never would have known had it not been for this world filled with so much injustice. Yeah, how would we, how could we, like the, the understanding or the idea of Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins, if we've never had to sacrifice that, that, okay, so Jesus died. So what? Like that, that would be almost meaningless. Um, right. It's just, that, that's so important. Um one thing I love about this, and we didn't go into this, and I, I kind of shared it a little bit in my video back in March, and so that's why we didn't cover it as much, and I would you know, just again encourage people to pick up this book and check it out, is, is you talk about these different facets of doubt. Um, one of them, though, being uh, spiritual doubt. And I think that, you know, in, in my textbook, when I teach this to my high school students is I think it's spiritual doubt is really interwoven throughout all of them. Um, but I, I'd love for you really quickly to share a little bit of how uh, really doubt could be coming or the aspect of doubt that comes from a spiritual side of kind of the sin maybe in our lives, uh, this un either unconfessed sin or just this, uh, the, the effects of the fall of, well, has God really said this? Yeah. That's a that's a good observation that, that the spiritual doubt can kind of, you know, run its way through the different types of doubt. I think it can be difficult sometimes to know if you're having some intellectual doubt, if there's some spiritual oppression that's influencing it. So it can be. But I do think that uh, that is a good point that uh, more times than not, you're going to find that that's a that's a piece of it. Um, yes, yeah, spiritual doubt is just kind of the element of spiritual warfare. So that's the, has God said in Genesis three, right? Has God said getting Adam and Eve 
to doubt. And here's the deal. If Adam and Eve can doubt in paradise, uh, how much more are we susceptible to having doubt in paradise lost? <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, right? I mean, so we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves uh, struggling with doubt. Uh, th- this kind of doubt, it, it's the spiritual doubt. It's, it's what, it's what uh, Satan tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness. I mean, fortunately, Jesus was able to withstand that. But it's just that voice that's in our ear, always trying to get us to you know, doubt scripture, doubt God, doubt his goodness, doubt his ways. And it gets difficult. Like I, I'm, I'd be the first person to admit that, you know, distinguishing between, well, is this my voice? Is this got a demonic influence? Uh, that can be really, really challenging to get into the nuances between, is this my emotions or is this um, something spiritual going on here? Uh, it calls for like a rapier discernment is always easy to get that and we just have to kind of go okay well how do i know if this is my thoughts well then we go well do i want to have these thoughts no i hate that these thoughts are bombarding me uh i don't i don't want to be doubting this particular thought i i I hate these thoughts well then maybe that gives me reason to think that maybe there's an influence of spiritual doubt taking place yeah you know and, and i shared in that other video of you know that's similar to kind of i would say my doubt is you know and coming from this idea of uh, kind of um, not a misunderstanding of what faith is, because I know what faith is, but it's when instead of faith being, uh, you know, a confidence, a trust based on things we have good reason to believe are true, and instead faith kind of shifts into what I feel, and it's, you know, when I pray and I don't feel like God is listening. I don't feel like he's there mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm just praying and it's going to nothing rather than trusting mm-hmm. in, in what I am confident and know to be true that God says I listen uh, and instead I'm basing it on what I feel to be true uh, and then I have these thoughts well is God really listening and, and those kind of questions come in maybe God isn't it's like no those are my thoughts because God has clearly said he's listening uh, mm-hmm. and to reach out to him in prayer. Uh, so the last one I want to I want to look at here really quick um, is that you talk about one of the triggers of doubt is internet bloggers or maybe if someone's watching this on YouTube it's it's internet YouTube uh, YouTube uh, you know uh, atheist or something so what do you mean by uh, doubts can be triggered by internet bloggers? Well, I think first off it's great that we have internet bloggers so I'm I'm, I'm totally game for that. The problem is though is I'm game for it when people uh, know what they're talking about. Sometimes you get people on and they just start doing blogs, right? And they just start posting these statements, but they haven't thought it out. They haven't done any fact checking. And so this is my concern with the age that we live in. Uh, In a social media age, you started this program off by having me talk about like my short videos. And, um, you know, I would say there, there is a danger because there's more to the story than the short video. And there's more to the story than the short blog. It takes depth. It takes time. But I think people feel like if they just build their worldview on little, little mini narratives and little sound bites, that they've got the full picture. And we need to be reading the articles behind uh, the stories sometimes. And so my, my fear is, is, is we're spouting lots of opinions. We're living in a cancel culture. We're writing people off. So we hear one fragment of a sentence that somebody said that was in a much larger context. And before we go and cancel somebody, we owe it to go find out, well, what was the context that that statement was said in? Because 
the sad thing is, is we're writing people off that don't need to be written off. We're, we're, we're demonizing people that don't need to be demonized. And it's really, it's not their fault. It's our fault. We just think that we've got a full picture of the story. And really all we got is one little piece. Yeah. We quickly think that if someone is going to offer a thought on something that they must be maybe against us or, you know, and I just saw a friend on, on Facebook posted an article, just kind of, Hey, what are you guys' thoughts on this? And then like posted, please read the whole article before you comment. And it's just like, I think we're so used to just, you know, I, I've gotten comments on my YouTube videos where it's like, I didn't watch the video, but here are my three thoughts. I'm like, man, dude, yeah. the video was three minutes. Just, just, yes. just watch the three minutes and then, and then tell me what you think if you have something to say about it. But it's like, openly, man, I didn't watch it, but here I have something to say about this. Yeah, like when my book, The Fifth Gospel, came out, uh, The Blaze uh, did an, an article on my book, and the title was catchy. It says, Pastor Reveals Another Gospel. Okay? So I loved it. Like, I can just I imagine like, the like comments that are coming in now. Yes. So now this is the thing that happens. You look at the feed, and if – yeah, go look at The Blaze, uh, The Fifth Gospel, and you, people can still go back and see – uh, what a disappointment the church was. The Christians were literally castrating uh, their very own because all they looked at was the caption. In my book, The Fifth Gospel, I'm a creative type, so I'm, I'm purposely going to look for ways to say things. But just to get people's attention, it has no, no the fifth gospel. There's five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people never read the first four. It was based off a quote by Gypsy Smith. Yeah. I was not saying that the Christian— is an inspired gospel, but hopefully an inspiring one, like 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 that that our life's been influenced by the four inspired gospels. Man, if you read what they did, they hammered me, and they were the exact reason I was writing the book. We need to be a fifth gospel. We need to be good news, and you guys are proving my point. And I think, as we mentioned before, I think that is the exact same thing that I think is frustrating about the church in this cultural moment. One that my wife and I talk about almost nightly as we, you know, as we sit there and we start to kind of look through the news or look through something and we see the things that Christians are saying online going, oh my goodness. Like if I didn't know better, like I would not want to be a Christian. Like right. seeing the way that you guys are treating people and speaking about people and calling them certain names. Is that really what Jesus calls us to? And it's like, well, we need to stand up. It's like, you know, Jesus called names. Yeah, ah, man, that's such a hard thing of like, eh, I'm not Jesus. I don't know. I can't do it in the way that he probably did it. And so uh, I think that is so mm -hmm. good. Um, well, Bobby, um, again, so those who are listening and watching, um, you, you in your book, you go over 15 different kind of steps in navigating doubt. And we've kind of woven some of these practical applications as we've addressed some of these. I would encourage people to go pick up again your copy, uh, a copy of this book, now Doubting Toward Faith, to kind of see some of those 15 steps. But again, uh, just even in the live stream, uh, Eddie commented in and said, I've dealt with doubt in my walk, uh, and the fact that you've overcome them was encouraging to me. So I know you've already been an encouragement mm -hmm. uh, to those who That's are great. watching and listening, and I, I know that uh, many more will be encouraged by this. So Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and, and sharing your story and discussing these important things with me. Oh, you bet, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. And uh, for those that are listening, be sure to subscribe, like, and share at our One Minute Apologist YouTube channel. We'd love to have you uh, join the party. And thanks, Ryan. Keep up the great work. Bro. Yeah, thanks. So good to see you. And I, I have all the links to everything uh, for you below. And so you can go just down below in the description and click on that link. Uh, head over to Bobby's channel and subscribe as well. So uh, great seeing you, man. Yeah, you too, bro.
All right, for those of you who are watching, again, I hope this has been an encouragement to you, uh, helped you think deeply about the things of Christianity as well as what you can do to overcome some of the doubts that you have. Again, check out all of Bobby's information below. And if this channel, this video uh, has been an encouragement to you, it really encourage me if you kind of help support with liking, with subscribing, with sharing it with your friends and family so they can see it as well. And if you want to support financially, you can do so in the description below. There's a link to the Patreon account. So thank you all so much for watching, for participating in this discussion. Again, join me in future weeks for more videos. God bless. My apologies.